I'm going back a little bit here to set up for chapter 13. <clears throat> I think we almost need to, to go back and set the book as a whole uh, in, in an understanding that we may not uh, be aware of in uh, verses 1 to 2. Let me read that again. And I've entitled this Bearing the Shame. And we're going to look a little bit then at, I think, the understanding of the valuation system that's here in Hebrews, and certainly here in the concluding exhortations, but also up in chapter 12. So verse uh, 1 to 2 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Scholars have noted the role of shame and honor in Hebrews and in the New Testament as a whole. And we can read this as a historical discovery uh, about the way ancient people did identity and relate this to ourselves only in a secondary way, but I think that would be a mistake. That is, I think this idea of shame-honor, which, you know, when we were in Japan, is very much front and center in Japanese society and culture. I think it's a part of every culture But it may just be more obvious in Eastern cultures and in some way is is not that obvious here. But what I think, shame honor hits upon a truth about the way all people do identity. Um, Guilt then, I think, is an inadequate, you know, we tend to focus on guilt in our understanding of atonement, in our understanding of uh, salvation, but maybe even you know when you go to a psychiatrist in this country, they're going. The whole focus is on uh, guilt, as if uh, this was Freud's whole focus was on a kind of unconscious uh, guilt. And I think there's a, a profound misunderstanding of what we are as human beings if we don't get back to the recognition of this honor shame system that's present. It's certainly present in Hebrews. It's present in, I think, the economy of salvation that's pictured in throughout the New Testament. You know, guilt can be taken as a a kind of private thing. It can be, you know, maybe if I am caught speeding, uh, then I can just go pay my ticket and my guilt's taken care of. So guilt is a kind of partial thing it can be taken care of in a kind of legal transaction. Um, Shame and honor speak of a holistic corporate experience. If somebody feels shame, you know, I could just die of shame. uh, The picture is uh, you could run and hide. You just, uh, it includes everything you are. But it also includes the eyes of other people looking at you. You This is the idea in Japan of a group-oriented Society that you feel shame in front of other people, whereas guilt is something you feel privately. Uh, and, but with the idea of shame is the idea of that you're a part of a particular people, a family, a country, a city. 
And that all of this then goes into honor, shame, understanding. This will change our focus in several ways. Uh, the resurrection and ascension, especially the accomplishment of the defeat of sin and death, is the basis of the new economy that is being worked out in the New Testament. So Hebrews has described this as the old economy is slavery to fear of death. And I think this is the basis of a shame economy. The power of the human city is measured in terms of power to dispense death, you know, to capital punishment or degrees of, uh, you know, uh, honor or in accordance with uh, degrees of handing out oppression or escaping oppression. And this results in the oppressive notions uh, to control shame characteristic of the city of man that is going to be very different in the city of God. We might say that shame is the root negative emotion uh, and it's warded off or meted out ultimately in the economy of honor shame or what Hebrews is going to call it the economy of shame and death and the, the, the slavery to this economy. And the economy of resurrection changes this up. That is that death is no longer uh, the controlling factor in a New Testament understanding. But this is not to deny the reality that we all depend upon others. We all depend on the group. We depend on the city, the culture, uh, for our well-being and our identity. Uh, Scripture does not in any way deny this. And what is happening in Hebrews is the call to a new city, a new family, a new country, a new people. This unshakable city and identity is no longer dependent upon the metting out of power against death. Rather, it is the resurrection faith which really does not factor in death. But death is defeated. Shame is overcome as part of the medium of exchange and the big shift here is that our understanding of the church is very much part of salvation in this idea this means that what we do as the church is determinative of our present tense experience of honor of resurrection of life of salvation the call to bear reproach. You know, Jesus uh, scorned the shame of the cross, but he calls us to come outside of the city to bear reproach. Uh, and that's going to be at the closing section of the book of Hebrews. That, uh, you know, marriage should be honored, and the marriage, it's going to go through language of shame and honor. But ultimately, all of this is taking place outside the city of man and in the city of God. And the way in which one escapes the city and meets Christ outside the gates has to do then with this reconstituted economy. Uh, love characterizes this life and, you know, it's, he's going to talk about being hospitable to strangers, there to be welcomed. Prisoners are to be taken care of, um, empathized with. Marriage is a permanent bond and 
fidelity and sexual morality are to mark the people that we might call them the outside the city people. Liberty's located here outside the city very appropriately. You know. um, love of money or earthly possessions is to be replaced by a direct reliance on God. A, a different form of sustenance is provided which does not depend on what one eats. And ultimately then we're in pursuit of an alternative city which is set up on this revolutionary system of values. And the presumption is that we are enabled to participate in this alternative economy because Christ is the priest, the king, who mediates and rules. So the city of God is, is we've already been told this, it's a counterintuitive place. Moses refuses the privilege of being counted a son of Pharaoh. He chose to be mistreated with his people. And the writer calls, you know, he says uh, that we are to then follow Moses. We're to, all of his readers are to do what Moses did and to go through what we might call a transvaluation. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. That's the language the writer used as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Disgrace, language of shame. This city founded on faith is characterized then it's by its reversal of the role of shame and death. Christ despised the shame, meant nothing to him. The way in which he did that, in which we are to do that, is through the reorientation entailed in resurrection faith. He used the example, Abraham endured the shame of childlessness and homelessness, looking for a better country, an alternative city, which we are the inheritors of. That which Joseph foresaw in Exodus from Egypt. You know, the, the language of chapter 12, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be undone. Uh, this kingdom is not subject to decay, death, and shame. It's not subject to removal. It's not subject to religious change, the change of the high priest, political change, the change of the king. Jesus is the priest king, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and can be dependent upon. So if we consider what value is being exchanged in the economy of the world... I think it's, it's a value gauged over and against death. Power itself, you know, the whole economy here in this world is one of uh, the powerful enables one, uh, you know, they're powerful because they can secure themselves against being shamed, found naked and ashamed, found poor, found destitute, found, you know, all the language that, and, and of course the ultimate shame is the shame of death. Wealth and power would be equated, and this was a patron-client state in the first century. And what that meant, those who were the, were the patrons, the wealthy, the powerful, they would receive the greatest honor. You know, this is what the early church is fighting against. You know, James and Paul and others are saying, when the wealthy come in, or those who have high status in the society... This is the problem in Corinth. He says you're treating them in a better way than you're treating the low status people. 
Um, and the, the, uh, you're treating people on the basis of this world system of honor. The basis, you know, gained on the basis of uh, what kind of patron you are. So if you come into, you know, the building, the church, and you're the, the patron, and the people in the church are your clients, uh, they're tend, going to tend to put you in a high status position. We know that was being reversed very early in the church, partly because uh, many of the people who were in fact low status slaves uh, were many times highly educated because they would be the tutors. They would be able to read and write. And so you get the odd situation in the early church, low status people outside of the church end up being high status people in the church. And that reversal then is is changing up the whole picture. Um, normally you would depend upon your patron in a period of, you know, if you need something. And he would invite his clients to his house to eat at his table and he would offer legal protection. Uh, he would offer them the relationship to you know, through through a societal uh, kind of o- over the, the slaves, the so the it would be a kind of a master, the freedmen, the rich, the poor, generals, conquered people. It it the whole system from slave to arisk, aristocrat, aristocrat. I'm thinking of the the cartoon here. Uh, felt bound to display and respect the patrons, the powerful. And being faithful then, that the church is undoing this, is not putting Christ to shame, but bearing reproach with him, going with him outside of this whole economy, outside the city gates. So it's a picture of checking out of one economy and into another, so that now, when and the Hebrews are apparently in danger of receiving physical persecution, beatings, verbal abuse, exile, maybe imprisonment, he says, you know, confiscation of property, they must be willing to give up everything in terms of a shame-honor system, So, since the Son of God gave all of this up for them. In the book of Hebrews, there are several... Uh, shame honor terms the word doxa or glory you know uh, is the normal way we think of you know splendor radiance um, but it can also mean fame renown honor Uh, there's a word for price or value uh, throughout tema meaning honor reverence Uh, the picture just the word shame and honor or modesty and shame, shame, disgrace, uh, reproach, reviling, disgrace, insult, all of this, you know, in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 3, it, uh, Hebrews 10, 33, consider worthy, des, uh, be uh, considered worthy, deserving, you know, there's the word uh, of being more prominent, preferable, Hebrew, you know, 1, 4, 7, 7. There's the word for insolence, arrogance, um, and shame, insult. The whole, the language is obvious there, and I'm not saying this on the base of my own authority, but scholars who, who look at this say that it's just saturated in the language of, of honor, shame, that we may have missed. 
And so when it says that Christ reviled the shame, you know, he's upsetting, he scorned the shame. Uh, A Christian brings hurt upon himself or herself in a very opposite, the very opposite way by trampling upon the cross. A reversal of the notion of shame. You know, death by crucifixion was the most shameful death reserved for slaves and criminals. Cicero had said, let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. The cross you don't mention, it's like a curse word, it's like a four-letter word. The cruel cross on which Christ died was the symbol, 6-6, of bitter shame. The death of Jesus is a painful death, but certainly, but it's a, it's a shameful death. And so, but the picture in Hebrews and in the New Testament is just the opposite. Don't trample on the cross by reviling the cross, but take up the reviling involved in the cross. <clears throat> we bring the wrath of God upon ourselves. We cause shame to be brought upon the Son's name. When we turn our back and go back, you know, in the case of the Hebrews, back to the old Jewish system. Um, and so in Hebrews, maybe uh, Hebrews 6, 6, 12, 1 to 2, there are these key passages. Let us lay aside every incumbent, and who for the joy set before, before him endured the cross, dis, you know, the language here, uh, despising the shame. What would be normally despised is now uh, relegated to honor, and what would normally be uh, considered honorable is is now reversed. Um, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and so Jesus is our ultimate example of remaining faithful in the midst of suffering, shame. He's exalted. The language is all that of honor. He's highly honored. He's given glory. Uh, The ultimate shame of death is of no effect. So Christ and salvation tie in directly together, uh, I think, to to the issue of shame and death, the fear of death. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of highest honor and we're called uh, to, to that place. And so the, the problem in the book of Hebrews is that they're longing for honor, perhaps, and a place in the society's ladder of status. There was a time, the writer says, you were willing to give up your social status. You've even had your property confiscated. You've been subject to trial and disgrace or shame in 1032. And yet, over time, these Christians' desire for recognition apparently is resurfacing. And there's pressure on them to withdraw from the associations that marginalize them and hinder their efforts to regain honor in society's eyes. And so this may be why some are so hesitant to be connected with this marginal community of people of low status. It would undermine their chances of achieving honor in the society. And so in the first century Greco-Roman society, uh, 
there is the, the, the worst thing that could happen to you would be losing your, your place of honor. And so Christians are withdrawing themselves from worshiping with the church, it says in 1025. Those who have left, uh, who have left need to have solidarity with the brethren, he says, who are imprisoned and tortured. And so he's trying to get them to ignore society's standards of honor shame. And of course, we know Jesus had done the same thing. He compromised his status by association with tax collectors, sinners. Uh, and the expectation is that all would be welcome. And this is going to be coming out in chapter 13. Welcome strangers. You know, associate with the lowly. Uh, don't associate simply with those who can give you honor. So security, permanence, wealth, sexual prowess, these are all markers of status. And those that have these are valued as great and powerful in the city. Going outside the city means you reject that human system of valuation. And you're no longer controlled by these markers as securing yourself against shame and death. Uh, there's a uh, you you can go through the history you know from Homer on, to, but even in the the first century that it's still very clearly marked. The idea of a guilt culture is a fairly new idea. Josephus says to live nobly or to die; those are the only options. That is to live with honor and without shame. That's the only choice. And so there was a strong tradition of despising. Uh, death as a mark of courage they, 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 but not a shameful death in other words not a crucifixion that was the most disgraceful thing the most feared disgrace the readers are con to consider any loss of status of, or social representation they've experienced as a badge of honor since God disciplines those whom he, he favors it says in chapter 12 and so we've just been through the heroes of the Bible were those who suffered loss of wealth, of prestige, in exchange for a greater lasting honor, honor in the world to come. And so even those who seemed to be the lowest of the low, people who were chained, imprisoned, suffered torture, torments, disgraceful deaths, who wandered homeless in wilderness and, and lived in caves, who wrapped their bodies in animal skins, they had no clothes. They were destitute, miserable. These are put in the pantheon of the faithful. These are the ones of whom the world is not worthy. In short, those whom the world despised turned out to be the ones who were ultimately accorded the greatest honor. And so the, the big task in the book of Hebrews is to show these people who have committed themselves to this way that lacks social approval, how do we endure? Uh, how do we patiently live this out? Uh, especially, and I think this is the culture, of our own culture, that puts ultimate premium on wealth, public honor, you know, avoidance of public disgrace. Um, so he doesn't, the, the th he's not challenging honor shame. He's not doing that. But he suggests a reappraisal of what is honorable and what is shameful. Conventional wisdom, he's saying, has gotten this wrong. And so the author solves the problem 
with an alternative value system. Uh, and he's reinforcing this. He's seeking to persuade the congregation to disregard society's evaluation of things. And of course we all feel this as we say that, yeah, we're continually up against this, that we, our tendency is to value the way our culture values and what we need to do is get beyond that. Um, we need to get beyond the dominant culture. Uh, and the way we do that, of course, I think, is looking at the ascended Jesus who enjoys the highest honor of all beings under God. Jesus' exalted status is to be kept in mind, to uh, gain credibility for the idea of despising reputation in the eyes of human society. And so he says, the son who is the heir of all things. And here is wealth beyond measure. Uh, the son enjoys the honor that is due God himself, due the father. Jesus is enjoying the highest possible honor. And he's frequently, the repetition is that he's seated at the right hand of God. And so this all exaltation to the highest honor is to be the pinnacle of our valuation system. Uh, the anointing of the head of Jesus beyond his peers, it says in one nine. The crowning of the head with repute and honor in two seven to nine. Physical pictures of the honor of Christ, and so the involved argument, according to which you know Jesus received the the highest honor, the title of high priest. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, it's called the most honor of reverend or revered names. So Christ as high priest is successful when the temple priests were not successful. He's su successful in the way of Abraham. He's successful um, in you know, fulfilling the role of Levi. And that all you know, sub, uh, the enemies of Christ will be subjugated to his feet. Again, the language of shame and honor. And such are the prestige and honor of the one who despised the shame of human society. So because they have such a hope for honor from the court of public opinion, uh, the author exhorts them, disregard this. The children of God boldly assemble together for the common worship, and they support those who may have been experienced disgrace and shame. Go outside the camp, as it were, uh, to the reproach of Christ. And the way to honor is through faithfulness, obedience to God, solidarity with the people of God, even in conditions of reproach, rejection. And uh, ultimately, you're rejecting the standards of the honor of the, uh, system of the society. Um, the, the, the Christian then is, pursues honor before God and not men, and in the, in the city of God and not the city of man. And this is promised, uh, you know, the fulfillment of this is promised in living out a witness to a better city, a better homeland, choosing suffering in solidarity with the people of God, living in, in accordance with hope in God, who is our benefactor, ultimately, and who we are witnessing to better possession than those of the world to come. So I wanted to just, uh, just, it's a kind of a simple idea, but a very different way of valuing things. 
and to set that up and then next week we'll look at uh, chapter 13.